0: Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Langevin podcast. Today, I welcome Patrick Kendrick, who joins us from Lisbon. Hello, Patrick. How are you? Hi, Alex. I'm very well. Yourself? We just talked uh, about the weather, which is obviously much nicer in Lisbon than it is in, in Brussels. Um, but, but you seem to be uh, bouncing back and forth between several places, actually. between You're from the UK. I am. Uh, your professional domicile is in Italy, I think, but at the moment you're in Portugal. Yes, that's
1: correct. Um, yeah, I'm originally from uh, from Winchester in the south of, in the south of England, um, but I was previously based in Milan for work, uh, and I moved to Lisbon in uh, the middle of March, and uh, as such, as an interpreter, we're required to have a professional uh, domicile, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, and uh, I decided to keep mine in, in Milan as opposed to, um, to moving it to Lisbon for, for a number of reasons, really. So... As a result, when I'm called um, for work in Milan, I I travel from here and occasionally I go to the UK for work as well. So it's quite nice. I get to travel um, with my job. Which
0: we like to do, obviously. Absolutely. (laughs) So your working languages at the moment are English, Italian, and you're working on Portuguese. Is that right?
1: I'm an English mother tongue and I work with uh, French and Italian and I'm in the very um, early stages, the embryonic stage of uh, learning Portuguese with a view to hopefully adding that one day to my linguistic combination but uh, I think that's some way down the track but yeah currently I work with um, I work with French and Italian Do you have a, a favourite football club? I do yeah uh, my team is uh, my team is Southampton back in uh, back in the in England which is great because we qualified for European football uh, for this season for the first time in uh, in over a decade Well congratulations Yeah thank you very much well congratulate the team and the management more than me but um, I'm hoping that Uh, As such, uh, Southampton draw a a French or an Italian-speaking team because then I'll I'll get to work at the press conferences, which is a bit of a dream of mine to work with my club. So uh, fingers crossed for the draw. Well, first of all, we have to get past a uh, a Danish opponent uh, this week and then the following week, and then there'll be a draw at the end of August in which uh, we might have a chance of coming up against the likes of um, Bordeaux or Saint-Étienne or perhaps an Italian team, Fiorentina, maybe. So, yeah.
0: It's not too bad, yeah. Uh, I, I think the way it works in the UK, at least I heard this from John Oliver, the comedian, is, is I think you sort of inherit your favourite club from your dad, or I don't know, it's just where you grow up, is that how it works?
1: Um, yeah, more or less. I was, um, I came to mine a bit late. Well, my I probably shouldn't admit this on air, because I get a, a lot of uh, stick from my friends, but yeah. I, I grew well, up... we cut this out. <laughs> I grew up... Um... I grew up the first 12 years of my life in a place called Weybridge which is just outside London and uh, there aren't too many big football teams nearby, you get the London clubs but you have no real affinity with them so geographically there was nothing to go on, I used to play in goal and there was a a Danish goalkeeper for Manchester United Peter Schmeichel who, there was a minor resemblance in that he had um, a shock of white blonde hair and as did I as a kid and I played in goal so someone once compared me to him and he instantly became my hero and I became a Manchester United fan, that was until I was twelve, and um, my dad moved down to moved the family down to Southampton for work. Uh, he was working in Southampton We moved to Winchester which is just down the road and uh, I went to a Southampton game about a year later and gradually uh, became a Southampton fan and now uh, yeah i 'm a big fan, albeit officially we 're not supposed to have any um, any loyalties but as i 'm not covering English football at this at this moment in time i think i 'm free to to tweet the (laughs) occasional thing about Southampton yeah that's my main outlet yeah
0: I should probably point out uh right now that um you are not only an interpreter but also a sports or more precisely a football commentator
1: we are back. 85 days on since our last broadcast in English here on BTV. We bring you live coverage from the opening weekend of Liga NOS 2015-2016, Benfica against Estoril.
0: Which explains why we're talking about football so much now. I'm not a, a huge football expert, as you will probably uh, recognise throughout the podcast, but I'm doing my best. Um, but maybe let's start off with this question when you when you go to a cocktail party or to some event and people ask you what you do for a living would you introduce yourself as a sports commentator or as an interpreter
1: yeah that's something i've pondered actually quite a lot because i tend to uh, my answer tends to change based on who i'm speaking to um
0: and it's difficult to explain what an interpreter does because everybody knows what a sports commentator does. But with interpreters, you have to explain the difference between the interpreter and the translator and everything. So, yeah, <laughs> that
1: will make sense, I think. Exactly. I, I tend to find that um, it depends what mood I'm in. If I know that I'm with someone who is likely to be a fan of football, then I typically say I'm an interpreter because I don't really want to talk shop all evening. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but equally, if I know that um, I'm in a very multilingual environment, then I tend to say I'm a, I'm a sports commentator for that reason. And, um, and also, there's a lot of misconceptions, I think, about interpreters as well, that we, um, that, that we are naturally bi or trilingual, which isn't, isn't really the case for most of us. So... Um, yeah. If you're in a multilingual environment, sometimes you're with people who are bi and trilingual, and then, I don't know, t- I find there tends to be a bit of awkwardness with someone else who doesn't really understand the dynamic, and, and they might start to say, oh, well, so-and-so speaks these languages, they could do it, and um, <laughs> yeah. I'd rather not get onto that conversation. So I think it depends. The one thing that I never say I am, which is probably a bad thing, and I think there's um, I never really say I'm a translator, which is actually the bulk of, of my income every month. So... Right. Um, that's probably because of uh, when I did my training, there seemed to be this sort of inherent snobbery from the interpreters towards the translators, which I didn't want to pick up. But perhaps I, I have uh, subconsciously, or, or maybe I don't know. Tr- uh, translator is not quite as sexy a title as uh, commentator or interpreter, so I don't know.
0: I think many of us do that subconsciously, but but it's yeah, it's terrible. I mean, obviously, because uh,
1: I mean, being a translator is a fine profession. <laughs> Yes, they're both very noble pursuits, I would say. So uh, different skills required. And I do find when I, uh, when I translate, there's a lot of things that I fall down on because of uh, perhaps I'm more of an interpreter than a translator. And so I have to make more of a conscious effort to, to be a bit more thorough, I would say, certainly with regards to, to proofing my own work. That's something that I do fall down on a bit. Yeah, that I can absolutely relate to
0: because I, I don't do lots of translation right now, but I used to do. Um... And I like doing it, but it, yeah, it seems more of an effort <laughs> for um, interpreters. I think I don't know if everybody feels like that, but you seem to, um, in terms of thoroughness. That's that what you said. But I think that the two actually go together very well because sometimes we, as interpreters, can use the thoroughness of a translator, and sometimes the other way around. As when we do translation, we could sort of. We can use the spontaneity and maybe the sort of linguistic flexibility that an interpreter has. So I think the two actually go together very well.
1: Yes, I completely agree. I think that's that's the best approach to try and borrow some aspects of each profession and and try and come up with something that works for you. Absolutely. So you, you
0: said there that sometimes you don't introduce yourself as a sports commentator be, because you don't want to talk shop. Um, I mean, we all know for every match that's on TV, there are as many commentators as there are viewers. And everybody has an opinion and everybody thinks that they would actually make for a better commentator than the one that's on TV or on the radio or whatever. Um, so I'm interested in how you actually became a football commentator. I mean, aside from the fact that you love football.
1: Yeah, well it's something that i wanted to do since I was 15 really um, I just found that I was always playing um, not when I was playing myself, but when I was playing um, computer games with my friends and we were playing football I just tended to, to commentate over the matches and I've always been quite, <laughs> quite vocal to be honest, um, sometimes to a That's folk. interesting um, And just the idea came to me and I used to watch a lot of matches and I thought oh I'd love to, I'd love to do that um, and I was a Met When I said that, I think to my parents particularly, it was met with a sort of um, indifference, really. They didn't really know what to say. And at that time, I didn't think you could even uh, train to be a commentator per se. But I understand now from a lot of my colleagues that there are specific broadcast journalism... Uh, degrees and specifically sports where you can um, where you can get into the profession that way, which I know for a long time wasn 't the case it was um, mm. It was more a case of being a, a sports journalist starting out in the written press and then perhaps moving to radio and and, and, and going like that a more conventional route so um, I looked at first doing it when I was at university doing my my bachelor's degree in French and Italian, and uh, I saw an advertisement from the from the BBC, who in partnership with the RNIB, it's the British um, Royal National Institute of the Blind, they were looking mm. for um, more representation at football clubs because there was a, um, a reasonably large um, number of relatively speaking of blind and partially um, sighted. Uh, as they were then known, I think there's now a, a more politically correct uh, term is. for yeah. that, but we'll, we'll gloss over that, um, who were going to football grounds and whose friend or family member were then describing the action for, the, um, for them. So it was I actually see, yeah. technically termed as audio description, which, yeah. is, um, which I know is a big market that's, that's coming into to practice as well in, on, on TV in the UK. And so... Yeah. They teamed up, the BBC and the RNIB, and they got government funding. And they, I uh, went to a couple of workshops on how to be uh, not just a radio commentator, a match, uh, a matchday audio describer, because there's a slight, slight difference. Them when you're on the radio, there is a tendency that you'll then go to another ground for a goal update, or perhaps you'll talk about something else. But these were specifically supporters within the ground, as was I. And the, it, the idea was to describe the action very specifically where the ball was and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's how I got into it. And, and, and after that, I was promised um, a, a role at a football club, a voluntary role, which never came <coughs> to pass, um, not once but twice. So I went away on my year abroad, uh, came back, did the same workshop again, was promised another football club. Didn't happen, and then I went away again, um, <laughs> as, of, as us linguists tend to do. And, and when I came back to do my Masters in, uh, in, in, in 2011, I knew I was going to be in the UK for at least nine months, so I thought, well, let's give it one more go. Yeah. And, uh, and I contacted the local football club, which for me was some Bristol City, and I started on the hospital radio. And uh, a few months later, a job came up in London. They were looking for uh, French and Italian commentators. And I was slightly wary about doing it in a foreign language, but I thought I'd apply. And uh, at that time, despite the fact it's London and there are huge swathes of native French and Italian speakers, my, uh, yeah. my boss at that time hadn't found too many people and my commentary background helped me on that. And uh, it went from there, which, which I have to say really helped me as an interpreter, and, and um, especially as I now work... Uh, actively with my with my French and Italian, it really helped me to um, to improve those spoken skills in public and um, I was just going to ask about that because um, you, you mentioned
0: a bit early on that uh, i mean in history that there wasn 't necessarily a uh, a workshop or a study that you could do to become a, a commentator, but you sort of develop from being a sports journalist. But but of course, it involves other skills such as speaking and 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 describing and so on and so forth. So would 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 you think that the commentating and the interpreting
1: help each other? I think they were huge, hugely hugely complementary. Yeah, absolutely. I um I started doing it it was, it was quite tough for six months just time wise because I was at Bath uh, during the week working pretty much. um, I was working nine to five at least because uh, Mm. I was doing a master's and I'd given up full-time work to to do the master's. So I tried to take the same approach. And then uh, on the weekend I would go down to to London um, to do the commentary. And at that time, right at the start I was doing, which is probably not advisable regardless of what language you're doing it but in, in i would often do three games on a saturday and three games on a sunday um which is a lot really i think it's too much that but, is a lot, but yeah. at that but at that time you're just you're happy to um to get the experience obviously to yeah. get the money and so i was traveling down on a train from from bath to london it would take three hours door to door to get to work i'd work on a from midday until about 10 o'clock on a Saturday. Luckily, I had family in the local area. I stayed with them. I'd work a similar length of time. On the Sunday, I'd get the 10 p.m. train back to Bath. On the Sunday, um, <sighs> be home for one, and then get up at seven again to go to to Bath. So it was it was it was exhausting, to be honest. But I think it was very worthwhile yeah. um, for a number of reasons. A because um, it allowed me to get a lot of exposure speaking. French and Italian uh, in a more formal context. I mean, I'd spoken it obviously having lived in both places, but broadcasting is different because you have to choose your words carefully, you have to enunciate, um, yeah. you have to describe the action. And I think a lot of that helped me uh, then when I went into... I, I should just add that I, I don't technically have uh, a, a French or an Italian B. Uh, institutionally mm-hmm. yeah. it's what i call a fo- it's what i call a football b i wouldn't <laughs> i wouldn't work into french or, an Ita- or italian on, a- on any other uh subject matter for the moment. I'm, I'm looking at doing it one day with Italian. But that's exactly
0: the point, right? Because it, it's such a, um, I'm not saying a closed universe, but it's a very specific topic. It's a very specific yes. jargon, if you will. Exactly. So I think, I think it, it's probably feasible in, in, in such a specific case, yeah.
1: Yes. And so I, I found that that was, that was very useful because all of, and quite rightly, everything I was hearing during my studies at Bath, um, and I have to say everything I learned there is Was fantastic And it's helped me immensely. And I know Bath have an excellent record of producing fine interpreters. Um, But everything I was hearing there, quite rightly, in terms of the institutions, was uh, only work into your A language. None of you guys have a B language. If you do want to be, it's going to take years to develop, all of which I agree with. But it was good because I was getting exposure working into French and Italian. And also quite intimidating circumstances because there then came a time when I had... uh, well, I had colleagues who were native speakers who were also commentating, and when they weren't commentating, they tended to sit or stand behind me, and you, and you knew that they were listening to you, so you had to, you had to get things right, and, and that <laughs> obviously helps then when you when you sit at, um, at the top table and you're, you're interpreting into, into French or Italian, and I'm not naive to think that everything I say is going to be word perfect, but... I think as long as you have uh, a reasonably authentic accent and as long as you aren't making grammatical mistakes every yeah. single sentence I think the odd, <laughs> I think the odd um, particularly with, with French and Italian I think the odd gender slip is okay uh, not too many of course but um, yeah it's, it's, it's difficult because I love football and if I were to strictly go on what is my A language and only work into my A language I would never work in football so I think you do have to be a little bit more realistic about um, what can and can't be done because as you said it's, it's quite um it's quite specific uh, it's quite a specific uh, niche in that a press conference will last a maximum of 40 minutes you might do two on the day and uh, they're not going to for a, for a question of cost and on the basis of just logistically they're not going to hire two interpreters it doesn't make sense so you have to work both ways and and I would I would also suggest that there aren't too many fully trained and qualified interpreters who who legitimately have a a, a B language uh, who are biactive who are working on the football market and also as 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 you know Alex there's a lot of people working on the private market who whose B or whose uh, second language, active language if you will is only on their own say so because perhaps they don't work for the institution so there is no official test to do so I think all of those things meant that eventually having done what was then probably 18 months of commentary before I did my first press conference, it, it helped me immensely when you're having to, to talk on air in French or in Italian for 90 minutes so so the the, the two for me almost by accident rather than design really really helped me in what, in what I'm doing now
0: and I would assume that because you refer to being, you know, precise in terms of grammar and everything, I think it's, it's much more important than in normal interpreting, as it were, to, to bring across the, the feel of the match, I think, or the atmosphere in the stadium and that kind of thing, or how, how the match evolves. Yeah. Um, that it's maybe not that important that you get every gender correct or whatever.
1: Absolutely, and I think the, um, the tactical understanding is important depending on where you 're working and, and with whom you 're working um, with the English media they don 't tend to ask too many questions about uh, tactics, but certainly when you go abroad uh, when you go to when you go to Italy, for example, there will be a lot of questions about tactics and there are very specific terms about positions and Obviously, in this job, we do have to study up for a lot of assignments Hmm. Um, and yes you can learn terminology and you can learn jargon but I think you do need to understand the game as well as opposed to just learning glossaries before a press conference you might be able to get away with it for a few but depending on what the game is the importance of the game and if there's some specific uh, tactical tweak that's gone on i think if you're not familiar with football you might you might struggle with that somewhat so i think the football knowledge is important as well i would say
0: yeah it's what they call the re- reading reading the match or yeah yeah exactly so, so we're going to talk about preparation later on because that's really interesting to me um for now in in so far as you can say are there big differences in the football language or football culture between let's say the uk italy and, and portugal so that the cultures you know best i presume
1: yeah um in
0: terms of jargon or what people want to hear from a commentator from a press
1: conference okay on the on the well on the interpreting side i think you need to you need to have the specifics certainly in italy um in italy they probably have a dozen different words for the various roles in midfield which in england we probably wouldn't have so you end up having to come mm-hmm. up with um with quite long equivalence really they have a word um regista which means director it's literally a film director um which in english i always say is deep lying playmaker which is a lot longer if you will so there's there's a lot of roles like that um so in terms of the interpreting side yeah you do need to have an understanding of the specific um positions uh i don't yet work with portuguese but Mm. uh in European Portuguese, the positions have different names to the names that they have in Brazil. For of course, example. they do. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally, just to make things uh, even more complicated. Exactly. So, um, um, so when, on the interpreting side, yes, I think you do need to to know all of the um, all of the different positions, what they do, and specifically already have thought about how you're going to interpret them. Have Thought ahead about solutions because it's one thing understanding Regista, but the whole job is coming up with an equivalent then and there which will make sense to your target audience, and that's not always easy. So, I think if you've already thought about how you're going to deal with certain things that might come up, a lot of it is anticipation. I think that's true in interpreting in general. Yeah. As, for the, as for the commentary side of things, um, a lot of it depends on what direction you're given from your employers. Um, I haven't been given too much direction in my current job. I'm working for for Benfica for BTV, the club channel. Mm-hmm. Um, naturally, there is a there is a tendency to to have a certain um, bias or partiality f- towards Benfica because I'm working for them, <laughs> Of course, uh, which yeah. helps because because they win every week anyway. <laughs> so it makes it makes it a little easier. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, it depends uh, and that's quite unique really to the person that's watching you, some people can't stand stats, some people expect you to come out with a whole um, list of numbers Um, other people just want you to say the names, some people expect you to analyse the game a bit more so it really depends on what you're doing, I try and do all of those things rather evenly um, and keeping in mind my role, which is to enhance the product and describe the action and not try and, um, there is a tendency to think that you're the main event and that's not the case. And I think the interpreting actually helps on that. Because it's the same idea, right? You, it's not about you. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're, we're heard and we're not seen. And I, I really think if someone's doing their job properly, you shouldn't even notice those interpretation there, which is probably, um, unrealistic but it's the same thing with a commentator you should only really notice the commentator if they're doing a really good job and they're doing something right I think if you do notice them it might it's often for the wrong reasons because they're annoying you yeah. um with with something they're saying or something they're doing so yeah let the um uh, let the game run its course let them um, let the real entertainment do their job so the players mm-hmm. and um and if it's a dull game, that's when you need to be a bit more active on the commentary side. That's when you might throw in a stat or, or talk to uh, your summariser or co-commentator and, um, and and get their input because nothing's happening on the pitch. So, yeah, I think the interpreting helps on helps in that aspect as well. Yeah, but I think being an interpreter also
0: is an advantage because you actually get the names right. <laughs> that's a pet peeve of mine with German commentators uh, in particular that sometimes they really... Uh, don't get the names right <laughs> I don't know if, if it's if that's annoying to the normal spectator, but um, if you know how the names are supposed to be pronounced that that can be quite annoying I think
1: Yes, well this is something I've been discussing with some colleagues over the last few days in fact because um, one of my colleagues uh, my commentary colleagues has come up with a very good idea. Of um, having the clubs produce audio files with the player saying their own name at the start of every season as a sort of um, style guide, if you will, for the commentators. I'm not sure whether it, I'm not sure whether it will happen, um, but it's a, it's a very good idea because a lot uh, a lot of times there are discrepancies between how the name should be pronounced, what the um, what the commentator is saying, but then uh, you know, then you there's the risk of sounding pretentious if you. Overly authentic, if you will, and on, on your names, mm. uh, you know, do you say um, Cristiano Ronaldo or do you say Cristiano Ronaldo? Yeah. You know, <laughs> where, where, where do you go with that? Things like that. So it's, diff- it's, it's difficult. So I think you have to anglicise to a certain extent, but also try and at least mirror what would be the um, what would be the specific. Uh, what would be the, the the authentic pronunciation? But I was having a, a discussion on Twitter earlier this morning about uh, about a French player uh, who's from uh, Alsace. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, in, in in German it would be Schneiderlin, but uh, in French it's uh, Schneiderlin. Ah. So, of course. <laughs> and I think he would call himself Schneiderlin. And uh, the commentator was arguing that uh, because he's from Alsace. And he erroneously said that Alsace is a German-speaking region. The last time I checked, it's uh, it's very much French-speaking in France. Yes. But uh, as with a lot of these border border regions, there's sort of checkered linguistic history. So um, so that's just one example. This is something that we, we have a, a think about quite a lot. Um, but I think as long as you're consistent, I think if you decide uh, on something and then you're consistent, uh, I think that's all you can all you can really ask all you can really ask for. So uh,
0: yeah. So, your current gig with uh, Benfica, how does it work? I suppose there are a few more commentators, or do, they, do you just do it in English or other,
1: other languages as well? So, I, I went to, uh, I knew I was moving to Lisbon in March, and I came here for three days uh, in January. And I'd heard, um, not rumours, but I'd heard from a colleague uh, who's Australian, but he has Portuguese parents, the he thought the only English-speaking broadcasting job in Portugal was with, Benf- with Benfica doing their games in English. So uh, I was keen to explore that because I was leaving Milan, where I was working yeah. as a commentator on Italian football in English. And although I wanted to move here to learn the language, I didn't really want to um, to give up broadcasting in English. And I was concerned that if I then wanted to, if I learned left it and, and wanted to get back into it, it might be a bit problematic. So I, I just turned up to the stadium in January. I didn't have an appointment or anything. Asked at reception about Benfica TV, B- uh, BTV as it's now known, and uh, I got given a generic email address. I sent an email explaining who I am and what I do. I had an answer within a couple of hours. The next day I had a meeting, and then when I came out in March, the next day I, I started commentating. So I was quite fortunate on that. Wow. Um, but that is because um, there aren't too many, as you might imagine, there aren't too many um, experienced commentators in English in Lisbon. Um, yeah. So... It's it's just quite a small market in terms of in terms of that. Um, in fact, the irony I will say is that uh, I was doing a lot more. Broadcasting in Italian and French when I was in London, and, and the irony is I had to leave London to go to Milan to start broadcasting in English. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I've uh, I've been doing that with. Uh, I originally started with with two colleagues, uh, one of whom now is is covering por- uh, football in Portuguese. They've got a couple of, of leagues this season. So there's me and, uh, and a Portuguese colleague, and I think the dynamic works quite well because I do um, the main commentary, the lead commentary. So I describe the action, and, and he is my summariser. Or co-commentator, uh, which depending on which term you want to use, yeah. and um, he will analyse the game. And I think that lends an an air of authenticity as well. He's not a native English speaker. His English is very good. He has a slight accent because he's Portuguese, and I actually think that that really makes for a good product because uh, you can tell he's a local. You can tell he knows the league and the team very well. And uh, yeah, we did that for the first time this season uh, on Sunday, Sunday the sixteenth, Sunday just gone. And uh, yeah, it, it went very well. So um, I only do the uh, the home league games for Benfica, of which there are seven seventeen a season. But uh, but it's great. I do it from uh, from the stadium, which is is nice because in Milan it was all from a studio. Oh, um, yeah. so it's it's much nicer to do that. Unfortunately, for logistics and costs, there's um, a lot more studios are being used uh, these days. But so so that's good. I get to I'm there in the press box and, and go to the game. And uh, yeah, I, I do that really as. Um, I wait to keep my hand in with the broadcasting and uh, in the global scheme of things it's more pocket money than than anything else Um, I do feel that I'm trying to juggle two distinct careers (laughs) and sometimes I feel like I'm not really focusing on either of them Uh, but essentially I I moved from London to Milan to to try and develop my commentary a bit more and having spent 18 months there, I've moved here to try and work on my interpreting a bit more in that I'm learning another language and I want to make myself a more attractive prospect yeah. as an interpreter by, by adding by adding a third C. So it's nice to keep working in football whilst I'm here. Um, but it, it is a case of, I'm here more for interpreting, for, more for my own personal development as an interpreter than as a commentator per se. I think if I wanted to really focus on the commentary, the next move would have to be back to London, but it's not something I'm considering at this moment in time.
0: But you've been a freelancer all throughout, and, and the commentating is, is usually a freelance gig.
1: It is, yeah. Uh, I've been a freelancer throughout. When I first started commentary, I, uh, I got my work through an agent, but I was still the freelance and um, yeah, so I've and I've I work as uh, when I do my translation work, I'm freelance. When I do my commentary work, I'm freelance. And then I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a freelancer at the with the EU, and uh, also when I do football press conferences. So yeah, it's nice. Um, I actually think it it means you end up working more than you would if you were just doing an office job or a staff job somewhere else, Probably, um, yeah. because there is a tendency to to take on as much work as possible and mm. not take as much holiday because I'm still I'm still bogged down with the notion that when I go on holiday I'm paying for it twice because I'm not working and I'm going and I'm paying for my holiday so I think I need to, I need to get over that sooner or later <laughs> and, and start feeling a bit better to myself from, from that perspective but yeah I've always been freelance and I, I do feel quite lucky in that I feel I was able to even uh, consider a career as an interpreter because of the fact that having done six months of commentary before i graduated from my masters it meant that i had a job to go into in london whereas i had a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of uh, my classmates who were who just qualified then those that didn't pass the test for the un or the eu have pretty much fallen out of the uh, out of the profession apart from a couple of colleagues who work for um, Copacabana jk in brussels but uh, but that's because they have staff jobs so i think that is a, that is an issue there that um there's not much freelance work to get your hands on when you are, when you've just qualified and you're and you're trying to get experience. So I was fortunate in that I could do other work commentary whilst I gradually started to pick up uh, more work. And um, yeah. yeah.
0: So for your time in in Portugal, have you given yourself sort of a set amount of time for getting to a certain level or? How'd you plan that?
1: It's tricky. I do like to. I do like to plan things, and I think it's important to have goals and, and milestones. But I, I find it quite hard on myself. I've done. A, um, I've now done three um, formal language courses, but it's it's quite hard to get your head around as an interpreter because everyone here talks in terms of the the various um, European Common Framework uh, yeah. reference, which I think is. Almost irrelevant in our profession because I think being an interpreter implies that you go well beyond what their highest thing is, which is C two. Um, yeah, so um, it's not very useful for us. Exactly, exactly. So um, I'm working my way through that to begin with. I think I might do the the C two exam next next year um, in March, having been here a year um, just for my own just to see where I am formally, if you will. But, yeah, it's, um, it's nice having the football uh, to work with because uh, I'm able to read. I read the sports press every day as part of my work for Benfica. I like to keep informed on that. I could already read a lot before I even started learning Portuguese thanks to Italian and French, and, and I found that those languages are helping a lot. And also just being an interpreter has helped a lot. It's the first time I've learned a language since I've been a qualified interpreter. I just find you... You have much more acute listening skills, more uh, better analytical skills. You're able to figure out a lot more of what's being said from the context. And, mm-hmm. uh, and all of these things have helped. But yeah, I think the time frame I'm putting on it is I want to sort of take it step by step. I want to... The next step I want to do is start doing um, translations from audios, uh, which the agency I work for uh, do some of that. So from football, and then I eventually want to start doing some written translations from mm-hmm. Portuguese again on football um, and eventually I would like to do uh, I'm not sure which stage will come after that whether it would be a case of uh, trying to formally add it with the EU and taking a, taking a test with Portuguese or whether I would try and um, attempt a, a press conference but attempting a press conference would mean working actively into Portuguese so I think it's going to be quite a long process but I, I want to at least have some intermediate steps so that i can see that i've made progress and and it's not just a big daunting challenge uh, start from scratch see there because mm. there are times when you think oh, okay i've made real progress i'm coming along very nicely and then you think back to the amount of time you spent learning your existing languages and yeah. how long it took you to really get to to a level Uh, where you could work with those and then it becomes then you really start to grasp the enormity of of the task so (laughs) i haven't put a time frame on it i think realistically to to be able to take the test at the eu to add it i would like to think three years from from when i started here which is march and i think that's doable because i'm here i think i'm lucky with my work that i'm able to translate from home so i'm able to spend time here i'm i'm amazed at some colleagues who are able to add languages in a very short space of time learning uh, whilst not being in the country still having full-time jobs and families etc mm-hmm. and then uh, going and spending a month or two at the end of their time before adding I find that, that blows my mind because <laughs> I certainly couldn't do that personally but um, yeah I think this might be it for me though language wise um, <laughs> I, I do I, I'd, I'd, much, I'd much rather have um, and i I looked at you on the uh, the Trom, the famous trombinoscope as well Alex, and
0: uh, which is the internal um, list of colleagues in in, um, in the European Commission Interpreting service, just for those who don 't know
1: absolutely and uh, I noticed that you're well you have a, an english retour, but I, I I noticed you didn 't have six or seven c 's as, as a lot of no. colleagues that we work with have and, and personally i 'd much rather have. It's, you know it's a, I think it's a personal preference, personal taste, but I would rather work with three languages, and ideally I'd love to work actively into all of them with football, mm-hmm. and perhaps one day add Italian as a, as a B for the institutions, but that will be after I've, I've worked on my Portuguese, than, uh, than trying to have uh, four or five uh, Cs, which I think is incredible, but I think it would take so much maintenance, and I think ultimately... Your, at least with your spoken skills, they, they do. It do, does tend to do some damage to how well you can really express yourself in in those languages when you're not working. Um, I might be I might be wrong on that, but I have spoken to colleagues who have said that just by virtue of adding and learning more languages, that you can't dedicate as much time to to the languages you, you start with. So I'd like to keep. My French and Italian strong and and hopefully add Portuguese to a a level where I'm happy with. But um, again, that's better's choice, shall we say.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That sounds like a very good plan. Um, Did you do the same about becoming an interpreter? Because you said that you basically knew you wanted to be a sports commentator, but you still decided to. I think you have a BA in French and Italian from London University College and then went on to University of Bath. Um, Why? (laughs)
1: why it 's a good question It actually came about from uh, from a very awkward, embarrassing experience uh, an interpreting experience funnily enough now i, I left um, I left UCL in two thousand and eight I graduated in two thousand and eight but um, to be honest i was I was a little bit embarrassed with my level of spoken, uh, particularly French but also italian so uh, i didn 't like telling people I had a degree in languages and then felt a little bit undermined by. Other people I knew that that spoke three languages and had a degree in engineering or economics, yeah. um, which is a lot. A lot of these people were non weren't English uh, weren't English people. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to make a generalisation, but um, well, you can interpret it how you will. Anyway, yeah. um, So I wanted to Im- improve upon those uh languages I didn't have anything clear in my mind about what I wanted to do so I went and spent a year in in the south of Italy teaching English and then I did likewise in the south of France mm-hmm. and uh, and I felt that gave me much stronger
0: languages and it also explains why you actually understand Laurent Blanc which which I find amazing <laughs> I saw that in in one of your videos Um so chapeau
1: Thank you very much. Yeah, no, I, I like him as a speaker, actually. He's a, he's a, he's a very nice man as well. But he um, is, yeah, yeah. Well, he's difficult to understand, I find. Yes, yeah, he's, he's better than, than some of the others. Uh, the worst <laughs> one I did was the, the coach of, uh, of Montpellier at the time, who was uh, René Girard, and he was uh, awful. Real, uh, real <laughs> southern accent, and, um, and uh, but more from the west, more from the southwest, and, and used a lot of his own... Uh, expressions, a bit of a sort of unique idiolect there. So I think, in some ways, you'd be better off with a French mother tongue doing <laughs> doing Rene into English than uh, than actually an English mother tongue, which, which yeah. just shows that occasionally, you know, it's quite good to work uh, into a foreign language. Oh, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. To get back to to what you were saying, um, so I spent a year in, in Brindisi in the south of uh, Italy, and then in, uh, in Avignon in the south of France. And mm-hmm. it was when I was in Brindisi that I did. Um, Uh, uh, a friend of mine who was part of a a fair trade organisation, they had an Indian gentleman coming to speak to them about um, artisanal wooden toys (laughs) and uh, he was speaking English and they asked if I would interpret and had no idea what it was about and uh, I didn't have a notepad or pen Mm -hmm. he had a very thick Indian accent so I was struggling to understand that as it was and my (laughs) my active Italian was in no condition at all to be able to deal with that and Mm. um, it was, it was bizarre. I, I sort of gave up halfway through. Uh, and I gave up because there was someone in the audience who essentially was doing my job for me, who was an Italian speaker. And I oh wondered dear. why it was so much easier for a native Italian to do it rather than me. And it's only years later, when I then studied it, that I realized, of course, it's going to be much easier to understand and, and express something in your own language than it, than it is to do it, to do it the other way around. So that was a negative experience, and I was embarrassed. I walked out of the room and uh... Anyway, that was in the year in Brindisi. A year later, when I was living in Avignon, I went back to Brindisi and saw said friend and was discussing what I wanted to do um, because I was thinking about moving to Brazil to teach English again. But then my dad quite rightly pointed out, he said, oh, so you want to be an English teacher? I said, oh, God, no. Uh, (laughs) And he said, so why are you about to embark on on a third consecutive year as an English teacher? I said, okay, that's a good point. He said, see if there's something else you want to do. uh, If not, go to Brazil. So I discussed it with the friend who had... Who had essentially hired me for this interpreting thing the year before and had vouched for me with his friends, and he said, "Well, have you thought about working for the EU?" And we we researched it, and to be an interpreter, I saw that you needed um, an, an interpreting master's, ideally, or proven experience in the in the industry, which I didn't have, and uh, and then we looked at the small number of institutions that offer it in the UK. And I think only Bath at that time, it was probably about February, only Bath still had their applications open. Yeah. Um, and so I applied and, and it went from there. Um, so it was it was by chance really. And then when I started the masters, I realized that I, I loved it immediately. Um, and I did, fail, I did find that the two years between uh, my BA and my masters helped immensely with my understanding of the two languages. I still had some colleagues incredible colleagues who went straight from their undergraduate degree to doing the master's and then qualified for the institution which again blows my mind because (laughs) I would have had no chance of doing that whatsoever but certainly for me personally it was it was important to have nine months of exposure of those two languages before doing the master's because it just it helped a lot more just the the sheer contact hours with with the language so yeah yeah it went from there great um I want to talk about
0: one specific thing which you alluded to a bit earlier which is preparation and i found that interesting because you tweeted a photo a couple of days ago i think about how you prepare for a match uh commentary i suppose um i'll put the photo in in the blog post so people can see it but maybe you can i don't know if you have the photo there if if, if you just remember what the table looked like that so there are post-it notes um a few magazines i suppose can you just run us through the um what what the match preparation looks like, and then maybe I don't know if you can compare it to how you would prepare for uh, for an interpreting job. Or...
1: Yeah, it's um. Everyone has their own different ways of inter uh, of preparing. Um, my colleagues uh, who I commentate with as well, uh, they all have their own different ways. I'm quite visual, and um, I find that post-it notes uh, are quite useful because depending on the way that the team actually play their formation, you can then Rearrange uh, the players on the pitch and when there are substitutions you can just post someone over the top I have other colleagues who use stickers and so on and so forth I didn't always do that it takes a bit more time but it, I'm, I'm quite visual and I, I tend to have three or four one-liners about each player be it a statistic or uh, something they've said in the media or if they have a particular uh, history against the club that they're playing against on that day or that they've scored in the past. And it's just a case of going to that line when the uh, camera pans in on that player or when there is a quiet moment in the game. Um, so basically
0: every post-it note is a player and, and if, uh, a few bits of info... About that player,
1: exactly. I have I have that for both teams, and then I have uh, on the right hand side of of my my big bit of cardboard, I have uh, which I have two bits of cardboard for each team. I I have some other more generic stats about the the uh, the form of the team in question, if the manager said anything, if there's been some big changes, and um, in terms of the club, quite an interesting time at Benfica at the moment with uh, changes in the management. So just things to to jog my memory, really, as opposed to anything else. And I find just by writing this all out formally, a lot of it is, um, is already absorbed before you even do the, the commentary. So often, if it's a good match, I'll only glance down at it, which can be a bit demoralizing when you realize it takes hours to do. But it's nice. It's more of a crutch than anything else, yeah. which, uh, which I think differs from the interpreting prep. Um, which so ideally, s-
0: during a match, if you're really in the flow, you don't really need all that stuff. No, but it's still good to have done it and have prepared it before.
1: It's, it's, good, it's good to have it, absolutely. And, uh, and when you're doing the same team every week, you, you do um, imagine that people will be familiar with that team. So yeah. I do Benfica every week. And there's, you don't really need to spend too much time talking about uh, who they've played for in the past, where they're from, their age, etc. It's more... Uh, topical things about them their, their form, uh, how many goals they've got this season uh, mm. and so on and so forth but I think it is different to the interpreting preparation and I have to say I think that's the thing I struggle with most with interpreting is the preparation um, knowing what to do, how to do it, how much time to spend. I still feel I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find my feet with that.
0: Because the problem is you can always go deeper and you can always read more and learn more, but you don't know if it's really necessary or if, it, if it's even helpful.
1: Exactly. And I'm not a big glossary compiler, and that's something I need to get better at. But I have to say and this might be my short-term memory, but every time I've compiled a glossary, how many times I read through it, the first time I hear one of the words come up that I've prepared, I can never get to it straight away, I have to say. Um, Probably
0: happens to everyone.
1: Yeah, it's something I definitely need to work <laughs> on because it sort of defeats the whole object of preparing the glossary. But yeah. um, you might get it a sentence a sentence later so you can fill it in. But um, mm. Or help the colleague. Yes, exactly. So that, is, that can be a, of, of frustration. But... Um I would love to hear more uh, I was saying this to you the other day i 'd love to hear more about other colleagues' experience a of adding languages mm-hmm. and b with regards to to preparation because I do still feel that i 'm very much finding my feet with regards to interpreting for the institutions. I know how to prepare for a football press conference, but if i 've got a meeting on on a, quite a specific subject matter then I will always read the documents thoroughly and then I'll Google around that. But Mm. is there one thing that I should be doing more of? Is there something I should be doing less of? Uh, Is there one crucial thing to do? So I think that I'd, I find preparation for a football assignment much easier than preparation for an interpreting assignment.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But I think we we could all benefit from a bit more exchange on how people go about it. I mean, there's no silver bullet that works for everyone, obviously, but, uh, I think it will be interesting nonetheless to see how other people do it and um, and if what works for them. That's true. Um, I'm interested, maybe as one of the final questions, in how the dynamics work between uh, you and the co-commentator. Would you say it's a bit similar to having uh, a colleague in the booth?
1: It is. Um...
0: Because if you have a Portuguese uh, co-commentator, as you said earlier, you don't, i mean you don't talk at the same time i mean it would be similar as in an interpreting booth is that right
1: yes it is in that you you almost take turns on mic but the i suppose the big difference is that both of our mics are on at all times mm-hmm. when the game is going on it's not a case of turning it on and off um and occasionally you might just talk over one another at, this, at the start of a sentence if um but that comes with with working with a colleague more you get um to instinctively understand when they're about to intervene. And, and there are certain, certain rules, unwritten rules, if you will. If I describe the action and then we have a replay, typically I'll leave the replay to my co commentator. Mm. Um, I'll ask my co commentator a question, then <laughs> naturally you'd expect a, a reply to that. And, uh, and when the ball is in certain areas of the pitch, he will, he will come in and start saying things. But you also have to be quite uh, ruthless in interrupting them. Um, because the, my job is to describe the action, and if I see that a chance is about to happen, it's my duty to to describe what is happening on the pitch, even if my colleague is in the middle of a point. So we had yeah. that a couple of times on on the Sunday, and I think that comes perhaps with um, with not being a native speaker. It, it takes you a little bit longer to put your point across. So so that's one thing. But certainly, yeah, we help we help each other. Um, I've worked with colleagues before where they'll just. Write down a note to me whilst I'm broadcasting, and your glance across, much like you would do in the booth with mm-hmm. someone uh, writing a word or or a number for you, and and of course you. Keep doing what you're doing. You're focused on what you're doing, but you're able to, to read what they're saying and, and take that on board. So I think yeah, there are skills definitely that um, that overlap between the between the two professions. So so much like you would do with a with a colleague when you're interpreting. Uh, occasionally, I'll be saying something. I'll be mid sentence broadcasting, and my colleague will write down, be it a, a statistic or or just say look what's on screen, or if they've spotted something to mention, and then you can do that. And 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 much like the skills you develop when you're interpreting you're able to keep your train of thought finish your sentence but also take on board what the, what your colleague is saying to you if it's a number they're suggesting or perhaps a, a word you've, you've used a certain solution and they've thought of a, 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 a better or a, a, an alternative uh, solution so I think there are skills that transfer between, between the two and um, I haven't had too much experience of it uh, only once thus far but i think simultaneous interpreting really helps with regards to having one thing in your ear and, and saying something else at least with that uh, you are you are saying the same thing essentially what the difference is but i think it's going to be a skill that will help me when i hopefully one day doing uh, more high pro- more high profile games with a producer in my ear uh, which I can imagine is quite difficult when, when you first start, but that's, a, that's unique, to t- unique to television, I suppose, where you are commentating, you've got the producer in your ear saying, we're cutting to this, uh, say something about this, and you still have to keep saying your sentence whilst listening to that. So I think those skills hopefully will, will help me one day, and, and we're lucky in that what we're hearing is what we're then saying, albeit with a slight uh, delay, um, so there are definitely, they're definitely uh, skills that overlap, and I think the two professions, for a, in a number of ways, are complementary. Yeah. So I have one
0: final question, um, which is a terminological question, I guess, uh, because for the for the kids that come out with the players at the beginning of the match um, when everything starts, we have a very funny word in, in German, which is Auflaufkinder, and Auflauf also is, is the word for... Uh, uh, a gratin, I suppose the French word is, so something with cheese on top, uh, which is a nice double entendre. I was just wondering if there's a similarly funny term in English or in any of the other languages insofar as you can tell.
1: Not that I'm aware of. I need to, I need to check that one, actually. Uh, okay. In English, we just call them... The kids that come onto the pitch, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think they are, because they're not mascots, because we have mascots that wear, the, uh, that wear those big costumes. I'm not even sure what we'd call those in English. You've put me on the spot there, and uh, in typical style, uh, I've not come up with the solution. So uh, sort of undermined myself there. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean uh, to. No, I didn't mean I'm to put sure. you on the spot there. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that's very interesting. I'll, I'll have to look at that. But um, in English, I think we might call them mascots, but then yeah. I think that's probably a word that would, that would cover two things, which would cover both the... Um, the the man in the in the, the, in the strange <laughs> yes. animal costume and also the the kid coming out with the with the ball or the referee
0: do you know where the tradition comes from because i've always wondered i mean it's 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 a nice gesture obviously for the kids and they're probably fans or locals or uh,
1: but do you know where it comes from or when it started no i'm not sure to be honest i think it's probably a way of rewarding uh, a supporter and trying to to get younger people come into the ground and I probably think it 's a way of showing the human side of football <laughs> as well but yeah it's it 's really developed it 's um evolved initially it used to be one one child that would go out onto, onto the pitch and would be there and now in uh, in international and European games you have um, you have one kid per player who then they hold hands with the with the with the players so um I don't, I don't see anything wrong with it, but... Uh, no, no, I'm
0: just, I was just curious.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's definitely yeah, unique. I'm not sure they do it in any other sport, so, so there you have it.
0: <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Patrick, and thanks everyone for listening.